This is Chad Harrington here. I hope you've enjoyed listening to the New Canaan Society Franklin Chapter podcast. My company, Harrington Interactive Media, produces and sponsors this podcast, and we help create and market media. We're a publishing company. And if you're thinking about launching a podcast, we'd love to help you publish it. We'll help you get your message out there and generate leads. To start a conversation with us, click on our website link in the show notes of this episode and go to harringtoninteractive.com. We'd love to talk with you and we'll start a conversation. This is the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter. We are a group of men who gather together to encourage each other in friendship and in faith and to support each other to be better husbands, fathers, and better men in the marketplace and in our communities. Friendship at NCS happens through our regular meetings in local chapters all across the country. The Franklin, Tennessee chapter meets the first and third Thursday each month at Puckett's Grocery and Restaurant in downtown Franklin from 7 to 8 a.m. In this episode, Bill Spencer shares his talk, The Story of the Narrow Gate, recorded on July 18, 2019. Good to be with you guys again this morning. We've had a little bit of a summer break with the 4th of July. Uh, all kinds of things have been going on in everybody's life. I was impressed again this morning when I walked in was talking to Andy. What, what if we just knew the stories of all the guys in the room? I would love to have a, a, a little book of that if somebody wants to put that together. I would love that we had time in our life and we don't have time to everybody learn everybody's stories, but I'm hoping that you're learning the stories of the brothers around your table. Uh, even if you're new here this morning, uh, one of the things that's a, a, a major component of our life together is, is men having conversation that takes us deeper than what our typical conversations about work, weather, sports, even politics. Um, you know, we can even hide behind theological conversations. And um, we do that a lot instead of really talking about the matters of the heart and the things that men really care about, like uh, the relationships that we have with our wife, with our friends, and with our, our children and our grandchildren, and, and how do we become uh, the generation of men uh, that have the gentleness and strength of our Lord Jesus Christ? How do we do that? How do we become those men? So it's really easy to take an attitude to ourselves that, that makes us uh, into some authoritarian kind of guy, the grandpa or whatever. But how do, how do we as grandfathers, how do we as fathers, how do we as young men take the spirit of Christ, uh, the gentleness and the strength of our Lord Jesus that comes from his relationship with his father inside the Trinity and bring it into the world? That's what we're going to talk about in part this morning. I, Bill Spencer is here this morning. I'm going to ask him to come up here. He is a dear friend of mine. Um, I don't know how I got to be so lucky to be his friend, but... He thinks, he thinks I'm a, a nice guy, and we hang out some. And, and a lot of you guys know Bill and what he's doing with uh, Narrowgate Ministry and Young Men. Um, it is um, a pleasure, once again, to welcome you to this place, brother. Carry on. Kind words can be tough to live up to sometimes, so thank you, Wes. I feel the same way. I'm not sure how I got to be such good friends with Wes. And Wes is one of those guys that when you know him, you know him forever. We've known each other for, wow, 16, 17, 18 years, I suppose now, maybe more. 
And sometimes we'll go a year and not speak. We won't change an email, a text, or anything. And when we see each other, we just sort of pick up where we left off as if it was yesterday. And I guess my prayer for this entire assemblage of men would be that. That relationships would become so close and so dear that there would be so much admiration and so much hope that we share that we could go a year and one day show up and just pick up as if it was yesterday. I think if we do that, we'd be joined as the body of Christ in a way that we'd see some motion maybe, maybe we don't see right now. So some of you I know, most of you I don't. Um, a couple of my guys are here. I see Andy back there and Jarrett. Um, if you want to know the things that I'm about to say, if you want to fact check them and know if they're true or not, just go find those two young guys back in the back that don't look a thing like us. And you can ask them when it's all said and done whether or not this stuff is true. I will tell you that um, in 2002, I got tricked into going to church by a client. Uh, the client said, what are you doing for dinner? You guys use this if you want to. What are you doing for dinner? It was a Wednesday night. And of course, if a client's paying you well and they ask what you're doing for dinner, your answer is whatever you're doing for dinner. Turned out dinner was in the basement of a church building on Old Hickory Boulevard. It was a spaghetti dinner as a fundraiser for a homeless ministry. And it was that really crappy spaghetti dinner where there was water left in the bottom of the styrofoam plate. The things we do for business. Got done, they said, you ready to go upstairs? And so we went upstairs. Everybody was excited because it was basically the one-year anniversary of the, uh, the 9-11 catastrophe. And the last survivor from the World Trade Center collapse was in town along with Jim Simbler from the Brooklyn Tabernacle. She was going to give her testimony of how she became a believer through this miraculous encounter, and Jim was going to preach. I had my wife with me, and at the end of the evening, I could not have told you a thing that was said. Not a thing. What I could have told you is that I encountered God that night. And it was devastating. My wife and I left in tears, and I don't mean like pretty movie star tears. We were snot bubble crying when we left. That's a manly thing to admit, isn't it? And we snot bubble cried for 90 men, for 90 days. It didn't stop. For three months, we snot bubble cried every day. We'd get up and we'd read together in the morning. We'd wind up on our knees in front of the couch, bawling and confessing to God, we're sorry. Something happens when the human experience meets the reflected perfection of God. And for the first time, we get a glimpse of who we really are. It's pretty devastating. And we got reintroduced daily to that reflection. And daily there was repentance and daily there was sorrow. And one day when we were knelt down in front of this couch, snot bubble crying, we had to get rid of the couch eventually, but <laughs> snot bubble crying in the couch one more time, this idea of a prayer began to evolve. You know, Romans 8 says we don't know how to pray. It's okay. The Holy Spirit will pray through us. And the idea was something like this. God, the business that we're growing, we're only growing to sell it, right? That's why you grow a business up, to sell it. The house we're living in, that's not the house we'll ultimately live in. The car we drive today, that'll go away and there'll be a new one. The money in my account seems to go out as fast as it comes in. It's just kind of a funnel. Even the breath that we drew in to say this prayer, we have to give back. And it dawned on us, we don't get to keep anything. 
at the end of the day, everything is going to come from God and everything's going to return to God. So God, since everything belongs to you, why don't you just do through us now whatever it is you want to do? That was the beginning. Now, it took a long time before things came to fruition. There was a frustrating year and a half that passed, but it only made sense then at the end of 2003 when we met this 19-year-old kid who couldn't figure out how to put one foot in front of another that we would invite him to come live in this house where we were living because there were extra bedrooms. Not a lot of room, but there was some. Besides, it's not my house. And we had an empty seat in the business we were running, and he was pretty bright, so why not give him a job and train him up? It's not my company. A buddy of his came to visit, and he needed a place to stay and a job to do, so we employed him too. And these two guys began to change. We'd get up every day. We'd go to work together. We'd come back. They lived with us. We'd cook dinner together. We'd sit and talk, and eventually they figured out that something needed to happen in their life, and that something was vision and purpose identity and reason for existence. And they had a dream to start this place where 19-year-old young men like them could come to discover who they are and why they're here. And they said, will you help? And we said, sure, given my vast experience in therapy and counseling. And actually what we said was, yeah, but you have to understand that if we're going to do it, Jesus has to be at the center of it. Because I don't believe there's any such thing as transformation without that. They said, yeah, yeah, we thought you'd say that. Um, Look, we're thinking it'll be an outdoor thing because we really know the outdoor stuff. So how about we do all the outdoor stuff and you do all the Jesus stuff because you seem to have a pretty good handle on that. Okay, great, except it's going to be your program, so you're going to have to learn the Jesus stuff at some point, right? There was a lot of debate, and eventually they agreed. And we started talking about how we become who we are. This was their dream. Remember, not mine. This was their dream. My dream was to build a really big company and sell it for a lot of money. Only two of you laughed. (laughs) The rest of you are lying right now. (laughs) Their dream was to build this place. And we said, we'll join you in that dream. By the end of that year, we had seven guys living in our three-bed, two-bath house. We had to build the basement out and put bunk beds in it. The septic system on a three-bed, two-bath house with nine people in it, it's not... The math doesn't work. If anybody works for the state, uh, look, I'm sorry. I apologize, okay? We had to get rid of that house through some unbelievable providence of God. We wound up on a beautiful 122-acre property. And last week, we welcomed the 400th young man through the front door of our home to discover. Nah, thank you. Remember, this was not our idea. This was not our plan. This was their idea, their plan. (laughs) They stuck around for about three years and then they took off and we got stuck with their plan is what happened. 400 young men, incredible guys. Now when you meet them, you probably wouldn't think they're incredible. I remember the first time I met Jared Owens, incredible was not the word. Uncredible might've been the word that I would have used to meet Jared. And look at him today, he wears a tie to work every day. married to a beautiful wife, and he has great kids. He's absolutely alive and thriving because he, like my wife and I, heard the call of God, heard an invitation, and he answered. He said yes. 
Guys like us, old guys like us, we, we, like to, uh, we like to look back on a generation behind us and figure out why we're better than them. I was talking with Wes about this at the bar before we came up here. I said, I'm not sure since I'm not really a part of this family directly how much license and liberty I have. He said, complete license and liberty, which is like saying blast them. So, <laughs> so here we go. I need a drink. Hang on. We hear a lot of conversation about the millennial generation, right? Truth is, the millennial generation isn't even our focus. Now it's Generation IY. There's a brand new, coming, brand new generation coming behind them. And we want to talk about the fact that they're, a, they're an entitled generation, a privileged generation, that they're, they have lack of discipline and lack of focus, and they should just be more like us, right? They need to figure out what the wisdom of true manhood is and step into it. And by the grace of God, if you'll just follow me, I can lead you there. But I'm curious, do we ever stop to ask the question, who created the culture that created those people? See, I did that. It was my goal to grow a company up and sell it for so much money, I'd never have to grow another company up. Because I was taught as a child that that's the goal of life. To pursue whatever you have to pursue, to accomplish whatever you have to accomplish, to live in the comfort level that you want to live. That was what I was taught. It's not wrong, it's just not complete. And so they grow up with a media set, with an information set, in a digital realm that many of us don't understand because we were born before 1982, the first time www dot was typed. And so our paradigm of leadership and our paradigm of social structures are very different than theirs. We created a world that told them that the goal of life is pleasure. The goal of life is wealth. The goal of life is comfort. But y'all, that's not the text. That's not the truth. And something happens when guys like us that have hairdos like mine some of y'all got a lot less hairdo than I do. When guys like us wake up and say, that's my fault, I'll own it, and I'll do something about it. When we read through the text and we get to Philippians 2 where it says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in lowliness of mind, esteem others more highly than yourself. Let everyone look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of others. Have in you this mind, which also was in Christ, who, being in very form God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a servant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even the death of a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those above the earth and on the earth and below the earth. And every tongue should confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the father. And in that little snippet, you get this picture that true leadership is not standing above and commanding and drawing. It's reaching beneath and lifting. That's true leadership. So when you back up and say, I made the world that made the generation that I despise, or I created the bus that I'm about to throw you under, how about if we just hit the brakes for just a minute 
and say, I see something in you. I see who you are instead of where you are. And I believe that if I sacrifice a piece of my life to get beneath you and help you see it, you can become at my age something that I cannot be because your potential is greater than my present position. What happens if we did it again and again and again? What happens if we take 400 of them and we tell that story over and over and over and over? I can tell you what happens. We get guys who are really successful in business, architects and engineers. We get pastors and missionaries and educators. Because it's not about us creating some vocation for them to step into. It's about us creating an environment where they can discover the vocation that was designed for them. Vocation, vocato in the Latin, a voice. What is your voice in society? What happens if we do that? See, some of our guys have real aptitudes in, in tactile artistry and artisan craft. We teach woodworking and metalworking and leatherworking on our property. Because they're great metaphors for how a master craftsman molds in us something of beauty and usefulness. Some of them are good enough that we actually started a company about six years ago called Narragate Trading Company. Write it down, URL, go learn it and buy some of our stuff, okay? Because I'm still trying to grow that company, baby. So <laughs> some things die hard, don't they, Kurt? We built this company where our guys could leave Narrowgate Lodge after this eight-month discovery journey, and they could go to work in the marketplace and be disciples of Jesus Christ in a marketplace ministry. They do such good work that it's wound up on HGTV, on Property Brothers, buying and selling. It's endorsed by incredible, like Amy Grant endorses our products. They do really, really world-class work. So good, as a matter of fact, that a company out of Indianapolis, Indiana, called Woodmiser Sawmills. Are any of you guys woodworking junkies in here? Let's, like, okay, very few. Woodmiser is the largest manufacturer of portable bandsaw mills in the world. If you take all of the bandsaw manufacturers in the world and you add their sales together, it represents less than Woodmiser's total global sales. They are the 800-pound gorilla in this market space. They turn trees into lumber. It's what they do. And they saw us. I got invited to lunch, and this guy named Mike that works for Woodmiser said, look, we were founded 35 years ago by two believing engineers. We have given away over 800 sawmills globally to advance the kingdom. The problem is we give a sawmill away and we have no way to train the people that receive it on how to use that sawmill. So we wind up with something that kind of looks like lumber sometimes. And if it breaks, well, it's broken, so they just let it rust. And even if they can make lumber, they don't really know how to build a final form, a final product out of it. What if we partnered? What if we created with you a training center where we can bring people from around the world to learn how to operate and maintain that mill and then take that product and turn it into something saleable and useful and change economies with marketplace ministries around the world? What if we did that? And I said, sure, we're all in. So for the past two years, we've been developing that. 
It's called Narragate Exchange. It's our third initiative. Narragate Lodge, young men 18 to 25, eight months tuition free to discover who am I and why am I here. Narragate Trading Company, six years old, we build wood and leather products and sell them into the market space. And Narragate Exchange, a training center for people from around the world where they can come and learn milling, wood product manufacturing, business development, and disciple making. And then we send them back to build marketplace ministries in their country. So this fall, young men from Liberia, Ghana, Uganda, and Fiji will show up here in Middle Tennessee. They'll spend 90 days with us. When we send them back, they'll have everything they need from a tooling perspective to run their business for one year. A mill donated, all the cans, all the tools, everything they need to launch this business. Plus, they'll have the funding and the support to build that business back in their country. Because the truth is, what God is seeking are people who can step into the voice that he's created for them to have in society and be disciples of Jesus in everyday encounters. I've got a buddy in Texas that's pretty fond of saying, you know, people don't have to go to church, but they got to go to work. So what if we were just the church at work? Let me say it again. People don't have to go to church, but they got to go to work. So what if we just became the church at work. It's always dangerous to bring up Leviticus in a public setting, but I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) You know that's not the name of the book, right? Leviticus is what they started calling it when they, about 300 years before Jesus showed up, we took the Hebrew scriptures and we turned them into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. And the Greeks, they're Western thinkers, so they got to give everything a name. So they called it of the Levites, Leviticus. That's where we get our name. But that's not what the Hebrews called it. See, they were, they were pretty smart. They used something called a remez or a hint. They'd say one word, and then everybody knows what comes next. So they just took the opening word of every single book, and that's what they called it. Genesis starts by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning is Breshit para Elohim. So they just call it Breshit. And everybody knows what they're talking about. So you get through Genesis and then Exodus. And Exodus is pretty cool. It's got a lot of adventure. And at the end, there's this guy in Exodus 31 named Bezalel. The first man ever to be said in the text of Scripture to be filled with the Spirit of God. And he was the artisan who was in charge of building the tabernacle. So they build that tabernacle, the dwelling place of God. And that's the end of Exodus, and there is no break between Exodus and the opening of Leviticus. And Leviticus says, God called to Moses from the tabernacle of meeting and said, if any man comes to me, let him bring a sacrifice of the livestock, of the herd and of the flock. That's how it opens. God called to Moses. The word is vaikra. That's what they call it. And that call, that's not like he picked up the phone. That's an invitation. He beckoned. He drew. Leviticus is an invitation by God. Extended to, if any man, it's extended to any man, everyone. And here's the tenet. If you approach me, 
I need for you to bring of the livestock, of the herd and of the flock, a sacrifice. God invites anyone to approach, but here's the parameter. Bring a life that's in your control and offer it to me. Sound familiar? The tabernacled presence of God is calling and inviting. And what he's saying is, if you'll hand me the life that's in your control, I will do something for you and through you that you've never imagined. Romans 12.1, y'all know this, right? Therefore, I'm begging you, offer yourselves, your bodies as living sacrifices. There's the life that's in your control. Even Jesus said in John 10, nobody takes my life from me. I lay it down willingly because this command I received from the Father. The model's there, y'all. Narrowgate exists because a handful of people were willing to say, the life that is in my control, I lay down. Now you do through me whatever you want to do. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, but it's not me. It's Christ in me. It's in Colossians. It's in Ephesians. It's everywhere. And I guess the question that I would leave us with is this. If we collectively walked out that door right now, today, going back into the place where people have to go, if we became the church in the market space, but we did it with the mentality of this. Jesus, here am I. You live your life through me today. What if we dedicated ourselves today to saying nothing except what Jesus wants to say through us? Doing nothing except what Jesus wants to do through us. Would life look different? For some of you, the answer is no. That's what I do every day. For some of you, that might be a brand new thought. But I would invite you to do this. Ask the question, God, if you lived your life through me, if you spoke through me, if I offered myself up as a living sacrifice, what amazing thing would you do? in me and through me. Because when you stand as a vessel through which God can love, you'll know the love of God in a way you've never known it. I say we all go find our vocato, our voice to society. And I'm betting that when we discover it, it'll sound a whole lot like Jesus. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the New Canaan Society podcast for the Franklin, Tennessee chapter. Remember to check out Harrington Interactive Media. We'll help you launch your podcast with confidence and excellence so you can get your message out there and connect with your audience in measurable ways. That's harringtoninteractive.com. 